Hey, Playmakers, real quick before we get into today's episode, if you're one of those listeners that just cannot wait for that next episode to drop, and if you're over on YouTube and my website binging my content there, I just wanted to say thank you. It means the world to me. But just remember, the free stuff will only get you so far. So if you want my complete proven blueprint for opening a successful and sustainable play cafe or indoor playground business that is profitable from day one, I want to invite you to join me inside my signature course, Play Cafe Academy. Head to the show notes right now to get instant on-demand access to all 12 modules, your detailed pre-launch checklist, your 34-page business plan template, your plug-and-play financial model to help you estimate your startup costs and project your revenue, and everything you need to save time, money, and frustration throughout your entire opening process. For a limited time right now, you'll also get an entire month of free access to Playmaker Society, my invite-only membership created exclusively for Play Cafe Academy students who want to work with me personally to optimize and scale their businesses through coaching, guest experts, legal and operations templates, and plug-and-play resources, plus collaboration with over 220 other owners, plus so much more. Head to the show notes and choose your preferred way to pay in full or over time right now. You'll get more information on the current bonuses. You'll see some success stories of those who have gone before you and exactly what to expect when you join us inside the program. I will see you there. If you're in the play and party business and you want to operate with more ease and joy, all while making the living you dreamed of, I created the Profitable Play Podcast just for you. Join me, your host, Michelle Caruana, for Small But Mighty Tips Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays that will all add up to a big impact on your mindset, your business, and your bottom line. Stick with me to keep the passion and grow the profit in your play or party-based business. Happy Monday, Playmakers. I have a very special episode for you today, and it is going to be a little bit different from the content I normally share on this podcast, but it's for a really good reason. So recently, I interviewed Carrie Bowen Poole, who is the owner of Smart Playrooms. I don't know if you follow her on Instagram, but I certainly do. And I primarily interviewed her for my YouTube channel because that's where I share all of the content for prospective and up and coming indoor playground owners, whereas this podcast is really more geared towards current owners. But the interview was so good that I had to share because not only did she give us some amazing tips for space planning and designing our play areas, she also gave me so many actionable tips about enforcing rules, making sure everyone has an amazing experience, keeping your space fresh so that kids want to come again and again, and so much more. And what I love about Carrie is she's so genuine and she's such a genuine expert in her field. And she really brings her background in education to the forefront of her business in all aspects. And that's something that's really refreshing to me because My background is in business, so anytime I have to help someone design a play area or pick out equipment or things like that, I do have a lot of experience in that field, but I tend to lean on experts like Carrie to really make sure all ages are represented, all different types of play, and all abilities. So 
I am really excited to bring Carrie's expertise to you today. And again, if you're not following her on Instagram, you absolutely need to do so, even if it's just for some play inspiration or, again, ways to keep your play area fresh and rotated and all that good stuff. So I'm really excited to share this conversation with you today, and I'm also excited to make a very special announcement. So while the bulk of Carrie's business is residential play areas, so designing play spaces in people's homes, she also designs spaces for commercial and communal play spaces, meaning indoor playgrounds, play cafes, things like that. And she's now offering e-design services for businesses looking for help designing their play areas. And again, it's not just picking out equipment. It's making sure everything flows together, making sure all abilities are represented in all different types of play. And honestly, just making sure that everything is beautiful and cohesive and fits the aesthetic and vibe of your business in general. So if you're interested in participating in Carrie's e-design services, if you're a Playmaker Society or Play Cafe Academy member, you're going to get an amazing exclusive discount. So if you're a member or a current student, stay tuned because I'm going to release details very shortly. We're still kind of working out a few little things behind the scenes, but I am so excited and I can't wait to see what you and Carrie create together. Because again, if you follow her on Instagram, you'll see what I mean. Her play spaces are absolutely beautiful. And as I've talked about in other videos and other podcast episodes, it's really easy to tell when someone did hire an expert designer for their space and when they didn't. And it is a big difference, not just when it comes to you know, the play environment, but also when it comes to seeing how their business flows and the guest experience and all of that. So again, without further ado, I am so excited for you to hear my conversation with Carrie. And if you haven't signed up for Play Cafe Academy or Playmaker Society yet, all of that information along with Carrie's information from Smart Playrooms, it's all in the show notes. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. I love connecting there. All right, without further ado, here is my conversation with Carrie, the owner of Smart Playrooms. Hi, Carrie. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited. Hi, Michelle. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So I've been following you on Instagram for quite a while, but for people who are unfamiliar with you, first of all, I'm going to link your Instagram in the show notes or in the video description, whether you're watching or listening, but can you give us a little bit of an introduction about who you are and who you serve in your business? Sure. So I was a teacher in my earlier life, and I came up with this incredible idea while I was sleeping, <laughs> and it was to design play spaces focused on development, specifically child development, and creating these incredible spaces for kids. So right now I have a business called Smart Playrooms, and we focus on designing probably 80 to 90% of residential playrooms in people's homes or even in their out, outdoor spaces. Um, and then we also work on designing communal spaces for buildings or, or just people in general. Awesome. So we were talking about this a little bit offline, but I know you mentioned that a ton of your business is residential. So when you are building a communal space versus a private space, what are some differences in your approach? Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. That's a great question. Well, the first thing is coming from an educational 
point of view, as well as being a mother, my focus is always on the children. So what I do is a big intake into what the ages are, what their interests are, what we want them to do, what we don't want them to do. And that's honestly the same for residential or for communal. I have to really understand who I am designing for because that is going to be the core of my design. So when I'm doing the residential, let's say it's different in the fact that the kids might be two and five. So I'm designing for now. I'm going to design for their current needs and interests, but I'm also thinking about they're going to be 12 and they're going to be 15 and how are they going to use the space? So I also focus on longevity. The cool thing about the communal spaces is that it is always generally the same age group. So if it was for ages five through 10, it's a stay and play type of place. And there's 30 to 40 kids at a time. Well, I'm thinking then specifically of what those kids want to do right now at their ages. And I design the space for so that many kids can come and go. They can gather together. They can play independently, but it's really focused on those kids. Awesome. So when you have, let's say, a new client that wants a communal space designed, where do you even start? Because I know for me, that was the most overwhelming aspect, especially from someone who doesn't come from an educational background. I was looking at, you know, a thousand square foot space and I had no idea where to begin. So do you have kind of a starting point that you like to use? Yes, that's a great question. And I think, honestly, I don't think I could do my job if I wasn't a teacher before, because Everything I do is focused on my, I got had a master's degree in education and I focus on what the kids need and how they play. And when I design for their development, honestly, all my ideas come out of that. If I hadn't been designing and creating classrooms to engage kids of all ages. And I also worked in preschool classrooms and middle school classrooms. And honestly, if I didn't have that varied background, I wouldn't be able to do what I was doing <laughs> today. So that's the first thing. So I think a lot of people who are designing these spaces, there's interior designers, just people, families, moms who want to do this, but they, just like you, they really don't know what to do. So I go back to my core of understanding what engages kids. And I go back to that center idea, kind of where we had in preschool of what are the types of play that really engage kids? So I'll think about pretend play. That could be a playhouse or dressing up. I think about storytelling or performance. I'll think about a cool building area with toys on the floor. I'll think about gross motor and what we could do for that. Maybe it's a rock wall, but maybe it's also just a foam pit or maybe it's just balance beams or something like that. Um, and that's how I really look at the space, thinking through the activities that engage the child. Um, and then my design comes from that understanding what kids want to do at different ages. Um, so that's really the core of what, of how I look at the design. Okay. I, oh, the other thing I just want to add on to that is one of the things that I think the core of my designs, whether it's residential or communal, it's always focused on open-ended play. And that could be for a 15-year-old or it could be for a two-year-old. And what I mean by that is that we need to design these spaces. The kids can use them in whatever way they want, but it sort of has the core kind of premise for them to play differently every time. Let's say someone's designing like a stay and play. Well, if they had to do the same thing over and over every time, they're not going to want to go back in a month. It's like, I've already done that. 
So what I do when I create different areas, I know that the child can use it a ton of different ways, whether it's the toys that are there, whether it's how I set it up, or whether how one thing leads to another, or there's floor play, tabletop play. So that is really the key, I think, for my success in my designs. And success really means that the kids love it now, and they love it for years to come. So kind of following along that point, do you ever design spaces that can kind of be rearranged or rotated or anything like that to kind of keep it fresh? Yes, I think everything I do is can be rotated. And the rotation for me would focus on the toys and materials, especially in a residential home. So even if you have the storage and you have the general layout, obviously the toys and materials are going to switch. They might be wanting to draw now. They might be doing beading and sort of STEM learning when they're 12. So you want to make sure that if you have a table in storage, that the materials can be changed according to their interest. Um, and I think the same for the communal. So if we do sort of supports on the ceiling, you know, one time it could be that it's a climbing rope and the next time it's a trapeze or it's a yoga hammock or it's something else that's totally different hanging from the ceiling. So that is super important to think about things being able to be fixed permanently in the design and to think about what those would be versus some of the things we might want to switch out to make it different the next time that they come. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you mentioned your educational background because again, as I mentioned a little bit offline, this was an area that I really struggled with because I have a business background. I knew I wanted to bring a space like this to my community, but I just didn't know how to execute it. And now I always recommend to my students, if you don't have an educational background or a design background, definitely reach out for help. I didn't do enough of that when I was getting started. And one of the mistakes that I made was I leaned too heavily into one type of play. So I did a lot of imaginative play, not enough, I guess, gross motor play and things like that. So can you just back up a little bit and talk about the importance of including different types of play, even in a smaller space. Sure. That's so important, I think. And for me, it's not only thinking through what those areas would be, but then you got to do it really well. And so the small spaces for me sometimes are more challenging than the bigger spaces because you have to focus on maybe only a couple of activities, but you have to do them really well. Um, the overall goal, remember, for all these zones or activities is that the kids want to stay and play for long periods of time. Um, the, the perfect playroom has children engrossed in activity here. And then when they're ready, they sort of naturally wander to the next thing. And if that's not interesting, they go to the next thing, but that they are engrossed and sort of invested in the areas, again, because we know innately this is what kids love to do. So some of those other areas, I always love to do like kind of a building zone, especially for younger kids, but definitely in a stay and play. That could be with magnetiles, blocks. There's a cool toy called Click So. It could be with people and animals, you know, something open-ended where the kids are allowed to tell stories and make up scenarios and build things. But again, it can be different every time. It could be a zoo today. It might be building a house later on. They might be cars and trucks. It might be reinventing something they just saw yesterday, or it could be something that they sort of were interested in a year ago. So by just having those, again, open-ended toys, just in a simple building zone, all kids are going to want to play with those materials and they're going to do it differently depending on what they're coming to the play with. 
So that's one area. I think imaginative play, as you mentioned, is amazing. And that's really pretend play. You know, it could be a kitchen set. We do forts. We do playhouses. We do dress up berries. Anything like that, I think, is amazing. Um, the physical play is really where I love focusing on that because I think we sometimes forget how important that is for children. And I do think kids are doing less of that. They're overscheduled. Schools aren't really having as much recess. So I made it a point to really focus on active play and even sensory play or even just relaxing play, but some sort of movement in the space. And that could be, again, it could be swings. It could be a trapeze. It could be a balance board just on the floor. It could be kind of, you know, little balance steps for kids. They can rearrange those how they want. You know, I'm sort of famous for like my ninja areas where kids go from ropes and ladders and rock climbing and monkey bars. And I try to create that zone too. So there's different ways that the kids can use it and that they are innately challenged and interested in that. Um, I love performance zones as well. Just having a stage and some simple music. I think music is incredible for kids. They all love to perform. You can have puppets and felt boards and that's really sophisticated learning. And for some kids, that's really hard to do, but that's a nice activity for some kids just to sit quietly or to do that with others. Um, and I love like in a communal space, I love creating like a big market that goes back to imaginative play, but it's a little bit different because you can get so many kids buying and selling things. And again, they're working together or they can work there or play there kind of independently. So that's another real focus of mine, um, to have kids to set up the design where it almost is like they have to work together. A market is a good example of that. Cause you know, you need the shopper. If I'm going to check you out, <laughs> it's hard to be wear all those hats. So in the communal spaces too, I try to focus on things that naturally makes the kids come together. Another cool idea that kind of goes back to my building zone is I love to create like a Lego pit. I'm really into Legos because they're so open-ended and we've done pits at the bottom of playhouses. We've done pits separately and we just put a ton of different Legos in there so kids can literally just step in and start building. And again, that's something they will use always because it's so open-ended and they can create so many different things with them. That's awesome. And I, I, as you were kind of going through those examples of the stage and the market and Legos, that can be so crucial for children who at home don't have siblings or other children to play with, or maybe aren't in school yet if they're toddlers or, you know, a little bit before preschool. So they have that interaction in a communal space and that's encouraged, whereas they might have that same opportunity to engage socially at home. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, I think it's super important to think about, right, what we want kids to do. And for me, socialization, which really focuses on emotional support for kids, is almost one of my top categories to focus on. Um, Whether, again, you're getting a child who prefers to be shy to come in and play, but it also can be the opposite, creating spaces that allow kids to reset and kind of be by themselves when they're so social all day. So I, I think that is super important to think about socialization, like communication for kids and how the design like really impacts and influences either working together or working by themselves. Exactly. So thank you so much for mentioning that. So we talked a little bit about the different zones of play, as you mentioned, and I read a lot about that in your Insider article. I absolutely loved it. But now that we talked about different kinds of play, a lot of the people listening to this are designing spaces for, yes, one you know fixed age group. So maybe it's zero to six. But as you know, the difference between a two-year-old and a six-year-old is very different. 
So do you have any recommendations for organizing zones or just organizing an overall space to accommodate those different ages within that range? Mm -hmm. Sure. I think it's really important to just to, first of all, make sure that the whole space is safe for all the kids. I think that's number one, because I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan necessarily of, of like harshening, like sort of making that kids can't get out of an area, like a baby toddler area that can work sometimes, but I think kids with just their natural curiosity and they see the five-year-old over here, they're going to probably want to go over to that area. So I like to think about the whole space safe for all the age groups, first of all, because I think having adults or caregivers or parents try to say, no, you can't do that. I want it to be like a yes space, you know? Um, so that's the first thing. And there are so many things that are age appropriate for six-year-olds that are the same for two-year-olds that can be totally safe. Now they will play differently. Um, for me, the key is to focus on that six-year-old, to focus on the older age group, because if they're not engaged and they're not having fun, then the toddlers kind of lose interest. Toddlers lo like learn so much too by watching older kids that even if they don't know how to pretend play yet, because pretend play is actually a very sophisticated way to play, pretending I'm something and you're something else that takes some kids actually really struggle with that until they're five or even longer than that. So to me, create the space that's safe for everything, focus on the older group and understand that why it looks like the two-year-olds aren't doing maybe what the six-year-olds are doing. They are watching. And that is how young kids learn a lot by watching older kids. And all of a sudden, when they're ready to do something, they're going to participate. That's such a good point. And that's another mistake that I made. I definitely designed my space where my child was at, which was, you know, infant toddler, because that was, I knew that would be the bulk of our customers. But as you said, it really lost a lot of the older kids who did want more to do. So if I could go back, I would definitely take that piece of advice and design the space for the older kids, because so often we would have five or six-year-old birthday parties and they would misuse all of the toys and they would break and it would be frustrating, or they would want to get into, you know, the gated baby area, as you mentioned. And that would lead to a poor experience for everyone. So I think that's a really good point, especially because as you said, a lot of toddlers can start to use the same equipment and toys and experiences that six-year-olds are doing. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah. And one example could be, you know, even if you had like a rock wall area, a sort of an area that obviously is geared towards older kids. The first thing I must say is just, I've had 18 month olds successfully on the rock wall, you know, in people's homes that I've heard just because it's there and they start to get curious and they learn very quickly. So that's one thing just to understand that why you think, oh, I don't think the toddlers can do it. They may be able to do it earlier than you think. Um, but that being said, it's really important that there are things to make every child feel successful. At the end of the day, when I mentioned kind of emotional support, I'm really, my focus and my passion in life is to make kids feel confident and to make them feel good about what they're doing. I did it both in the classroom, that you do that by pointing out positive things all the time, and you could do it in the playroom, again, having the yes place, but you need them to feel successful. So I would, on the floor space in that area, have things specific for toddlers or babies or whatever, so they 
can be successful. That could be soft little rubber balls that they could just roll to each other. You know, it could be a pickler triangle or some sort of smaller climbing thing that can mimic the rock wall, but that they are able again to be successful. It could be a much like lower slide. It could be some other sort of movement. I love trapeze bars because mostly they can just stand and hang and any two-year-old can do that. And they don't even have to move. Eventually they'll lift their feet up. Um, but for some, that's a just a great, fun, safe activity. So that's how I look at it, geared towards the oldest. But again, make sure that there are things that every child can do successfully um, because they're going to feel really good when they know how to do those things. And then they can move on to some of the things that they haven't been able to do or they don't really know how to do yet. I love that. And I love how you call it a yes space. That makes me feel just so happy and it makes me feel a lot safer bringing my kids there. I have a son who's six, who's autistic, and we often avoid play spaces just because there are so many areas he can't go. There's equipment with, you know, text on it that says ages from this to this, and he can't read yet. He has very limited communication. So we avoid those spaces. Mm -hmm. So I love that you brought that up. So one question that I did have is that a lot of spaces do have some sort of, you know, no's or boundaries or safety requirements. And this might be kind of tapping into your teaching experience, but do you have any tips for helping people designing a communal space help children play safely? Maybe it's no running, maybe it's no going up the slide while still kind of fostering that yes environment and still keeping that positive, that positive feel for the kids and parents. Yeah, that is such a good question. And boy, that's actually, it's really hard to answer. I love your example about the slide. Because I mean, yes, you create, you have a slide and all this, but how the kids actually use it is tricky because at the end of the day, again, we want to be yes space for all the kids. We want it to be safe. And if you have a young toddler coming down with a six-year-old scrambling up and, you know, that's just not a good scenario. So, I mean, I'm a big believer in rules. I, I think rules and boundaries are fantastic for kids. I did it both as a mother and obviously in the classroom. We're so focused on rules. And in fact, we spend our first week just going over the rules because when kids understand the rules, they no longer push the limits. And in fact, it makes the whole rest of the year, you don't need to focus on the rules if you do it really well in that first week. And I think parenting is the same thing. If you are consistent about your rules, you can do this. You know, I don't want you to do that. And you're consistent. They don't kind of push the envelope per se all the time. It's when we're inconsistent and they're not sure, then it sort of gets all um, so I think for the communal spaces, I think you have to think about that. Really, what are your rules? And and it is okay to have rules that there's only one way to calm down the slide. And I think to have a sign reminding parents and caregivers about that, I, I think that's a good idea because, again, the goal is to have it be that everyone feels safe and has fun and everyone follows the rules. So um hopefully that answers your question. I think that's a really tough question, but I think thinking about the rules before and then thinking about if you want to supervise those rules and how you share those rules to other people is really fundamental um, to the success, I think. And also really for the fun of the kids, because if they are there and they don't know the rules, 
or let's say I go with one parent and they let me go up and down the slide 20 times. I push the kids off and do whatever I want. And then the next time I'm with a parent, they say, oh no, you can only go down. Well, think of it, I'm totally confused. And it, then it's not so fun when I follow the rules because <laughs> I want to run up and down and push people. So I think thinking through what the rules are, being consistent, maybe you let people know as they come in, it's here's our rules We're and having people help you know, the kids and the parents, because sometimes the parents push the boundaries and the rules as well to understand that. I think when adults understand the importance of the rules and how it helps every child, they they will agree to it. It's when uh, all the rules are loosey-goosey and you're not really sure. It's sort of just then everyone's sort of all over the place. That's such a good point. And there's so many amazing things that you said that I just kind of want to pull out because- so many things are exactly aligned with what I teach. For example, I first, I just recently released a podcast episode about using visual signs to kind of help parents help their children understand the rules Mm -hmm. because a lot of the children that we serve can't yet read, or maybe they have communication issues or disabilities. So I love the idea of using visual signs with, you know, multimedium approach. So maybe it's sound and text and a picture to help again, make sure those rules are enforced consistently. And That's something that is so important as a communal place-based owner is if you're going to have rules and you don't enforce them, it can be extremely frustrating for your staff, for your parents. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the biggest issues that I see with owners is sometimes they get tired or they're in the back room. So I think, again, consistency is so important. And I can't begin to tell you how frustrating it is for me as a parent to work so hard to teach my child a specific rule. Like for example, don't go up the slide. And then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden they see another child do it and everything I've done, all of the work that I've done has completely been reversed. So I always recommend to make sure you have enough staff, enough help to really make sure that those rules are being enforced consistently across the board, whether it's a party or during open play. Um, it's always going to be worth the return on investment because people are going to want to come back and they're going to want to enjoy your space. Just yesterday, we were at a restaurant with my son, who is autistic, as I said, and so often we have to struggle with him at restaurants because there are boundaries and there are rules that we practice and practice. And he really wanted to throw a rock like over the wall into the water. And we've explained time and time again that you can't do that. And usually what I'll do is he'll try once will say no. And then he accepts it because we've been working at it. And of course the waitress had to come over and say, Oh no, it's fine. You can go do that. And it was so frustrating because there was a sign that said, you know, don't throw anything into the water. So even though they were trying to be accommodating, it was such a frustrating experience as a parent. And we ended up leaving and getting our food to go because it was just, I knew it would completely derail our experience in the future. So I think what you said is so important that it's really for the service of the parents and the kids. Mm -hmm. And I love also just one more thing, what you said about making sure they understand the reasoning behind it. Yes, that's key. Yes, to lead a place of education. Like for example, I don't know if you have experienced this, but most of us have a no shoe policy Mm -hmm. and a lot of people complain about it until we explain, well, you know, 50% of the people that come in here are crawlers or they're early toddlers and they like to put things in their mouth. And do you want shoes with debris and rock salt and all this stuff coming into our space and your child put it in their mouth? Probably not. So as soon as we explain it, Mm -hmm. all of that kind of anger or confusion goes away. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's, yeah, that's exactly it. And I think really kids like rules. You know, once we understand that as parents, it makes it so much easier. Kids don't feel safe when rules are inconsistent or when there are no rules. So just for me, it's just focus just on that. Kids, honestly, they love rules and, and consistent boundaries. So when we know that, it's so much easier to do that. I think for some people, they get in their heads, oh, they don't like this rule. Oh, oh, they hate that. They're not going to have fun because I'm not following that. But if you innately embrace kids love rules um, because it makes them feel safe, that's good. And again, and I understand at some point they might not like a specific rule, but you know what? Life is all about rules. And and, and I think it's good to think about that too. We're, we are creating spaces, educating kids for their lifelong success. And you know what? There's going to be different rules at different places. And you know what? The kids that are successful and people who are in a business situation are successful when they follow the rules. It allows your creativity and everything else to kind of flourish when we sort of just have the basic rules and then we can move on, you know? So just embrace that, remember that, and um, and it makes making rules much easier. Yes, absolutely. And I was just researching a play space recently and they actually had their rules not only defined on their website, but they actually had a video kind of showing you what you can and cannot do. And I was able to show it to my son before visiting. And it was just such a great experience because I was able to, again, anticipate what was going to happen, kind of have those conversations when we weren't in a chaotic environment, when he wasn't Mm -hmm. overwhelmed, when he, he wasn't right in front of this really cool structure. So Again, what you said about how you present the rules and how you enforce them and how you provide your customers with that information is so important. So thank you so much for pointing You're that out. You're welcome. And I just have a great visual. I think <laughs> I was teaching two-year-olds, you know, uh, people always said, this is incredible. If you just go visit a preschool with two-year-olds and you'll be like, wow, they are all sitting where they should be. They're singing their songs. like, And you don't know how hard that is to get the kids to all do something at a young, young age until you've tried it yourself. I couldn't believe how challenging it was. But again, it was consistent rules from right day one, positive reinforcement. Remember the power too of like, oh, you just did that. So I love the way you came down that slide. Or, oh my gosh, you're listening to the rules today. That's Let's keep going. You know, that also just makes all kids generally want to follow the rules because they want positive reinforcement. So again, if you're like, I'm not a big rule believer, go to a preschool classroom. You'll see what the kids are able to do when they are with a teacher that enforces rules that is consistent, the creativity and what they are able to do both as like by themselves and as a community is unbelievable when the kids just, they don't even think about the rules once they're instilled, then they can really play, which is really exciting to see. That's such a good point. Thank you so much. So I wanted to kind of switch gears a little bit and kind of backtrack to something that you kind of alluded to before about designing for smaller spaces and how you like to utilize wall and ceiling space. So can you talk a little bit more about how you might design a communal space that's maybe in a challenging shape? So for example, maybe like a longer space that's not exactly a square, or maybe just a space that's a little bit smaller than the norm. Yeah, sure. That's a great question. I think for me, I 
I always think about the activities first. When I go to design the space for me, it's understanding the kids, what their interests are, what the goal of the play space is. You know, is it used for classes? Is it going to just be stay and play? There's going to be 30 kids here. You know, there's going to be kids with sensory needs. Whatever it is, that's the core piece. And then the shape to me doesn't really matter. But like you said, the shape of it can define or can improve kind of the layout and the design depending on what it's like. So right now I'm designing a communal space actually in New York City and it in the basement of a building, there's no windows and it's really long and narrow. And so you wonder, well, geez, what am I going to do with that space? And Again, I think you think through the activities. One of the biggest things that I love to design in these spaces is some sort of playhouse. And so, you know, a playhouse can be in a corner with four walls. It can be in a long, narrow um, space. It could be, you also can go vertical. You know, we've designed spaces that the height is really high and, you know, you want to keep it super safe. But if there's a safe way to get to the second floor and there's, you know, you have the walls there, they can't jump out or throw things over, then you could get a nice tube slide, for example, to come down and that's super safe. So I think focus on the activities first. What are the three or four you want to do well? And then look to see where it makes sense for it. If I'm doing an active play space, then the more walls, the better, because for me, it's, you know, a rock wall is great because you can use a real long space. So if you have one horizontal one, you don't know what to do with it. You can have all the other things in front of it. For me, using the walls and ceilings is it doesn't take away what else I'm doing in the space. It just adds another activity. So it's like, well, why not? Why don't we have something different? Um, and you can still have all this stuff that's on the floor for climbing and moving for the kids. But wow, now we have a whole nother activity. I love long horizontal rock walls for communal spaces because you want to keep everything super low. Climbing a rock wall is so much more challenging than you think. You look at it and you're like, oh, that's no problem. I, I, try it. It's really hard with your hands and your fingers. And depending on the size of the holds, you have to motor plan your right leg, your left leg to where this one is. It's so much harder than you think. Um, so that could be something if you have a long horizontal wall. Um, if you have a corner, I also love like when two rock walls kind of come together and then maybe you have a foam pit and then again, you can have a rope something. So there's kind of interaction that they can go different ways to get there. So sometimes that is nice in a corner. Obviously a playhouse can go anywhere because you're really focused more on what's on the internal part of the playhouse with the kitchen and that type of thing. Um and I don't do a ton of real swinging movement I, I in communal play spaces because, again, we don't want kids sliding into each other. I'll, if I do a rope, I'd normally attach it to the ceiling and the floor. And sometimes I'll do two or three ropes because you you know that it's going to be more than one child using it. And sometimes I'll do a rope with knots, sometimes without knots. I can space the knots out as I want. So I'll customize the ropes to the height of the ceiling, the ages of the kids, and again, make it super safe that no one is swinging into each other. Um, so yeah, so that's basically about the layout is just thinking through what, but first focus on the activities and then try to figure out where you want it and where, and the area should be conducive to, again, numerous ways for the kids to play. When I do do a playhouse in a communal space, I almost always have two entrances because if you have 15 kids coming in and out, you don't want to like make it that they're so on top of each other and they can't fit through the doorway. So I love having huge open wide, you know, doorways, no doors, you know, you have to think, and 
And so sometimes that's nice in the corner. There's two different ways to come in. Sometimes it's nice in the center of the room where it's like the centerpiece of the play space. And it's not taking that valuable wall space that maybe you are going to use for climbing or for a magnetic board or for a Lego wall. We'll do sometimes on the wall too. So that's also a good idea is using that center space, which gives you other ways to use the ceilings and the walls for other activities. Yeah, that's a great idea. My mind is like turning now. So <laughs> I, as I said, I follow you on Instagram and I love seeing all the different play spaces that you do. Um, but something that what you just said kind of made me think of is, do you have any kind of go-to toys or pieces of equipment that you often use in residential spaces that you wouldn't put in a communal space? Because one of the mistakes that I see a lot of people make is they'll take their child's favorite toy or activity and they'll just assume that it will automatically translate to a communal setting and it ends up being a safety issue or just a nightmare or a huge mess. So can is there anything that you can just kind of think of that you might always love to put in a house, but never in a communal space? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I'll focus on what I would do in the communal space because okay. the, in the homes I do, you know, the kids are interested in so many different things. There's so many different types of toys and materials and you want it to be good for them right now. For the communal spaces, basically uh, uh, most people, and again, stay in play is different than let's say a communal space in New York City where they really don't want someone to have to clean up every single day and have to, you know, spend hours put, putting the toys back and putting them where they belong. So in any of those communal spaces, I think the key is to think about like five or six really open-ended safe materials for kids over three um, that they can use in a variety of ways. So some of the toys, I mean, I would say my number one is really magnetiles. Magnetiles have been around forever. Now there's a bunch of different manufacturers that make similar ones. Um, but magnetiles will engage a young child and a kid who's 12. It's amazing because they can go from patterning and lying things flat. You know, just in the classroom at preschool, I remember reading books on how kids build with blocks and how fascinating it is that there is a process and how they go from this level to this level to this level. And magnetiles are very similar to blocks. Blocks I love as well. Um, but the magnetiles are sometimes easier for kids because of those magnetic shapes. And they can be a little bit more satisfying that you can create a house just by pushing the shapes together. Whereas blocks take a little bit more of balancing, a little more patience to really create what you want. But I would include blocks and magnetiles for sure, knowing that they engage all kids. I love like the larger Lego blocks. Again, if there's kids over... Three, Duplos, if it felt like it was age appropriate, those are usually good too. A Lego wall for me, sometimes I'll do things on the wall because it just reminds kids that the Legos are there. Um, so sometimes I'll use visual cues like that just to get them started and know, oh, the Legos are here because the Lego wall's there. That's what I see. And it gets them to play with that. Um, I love like a magnetic wall is really fun. We've done different things with like, like balls and kind of like STEM learning in a way where they're connecting things to go to another thing. You can also just do basic letters or words on a magnetic board. You can do animals and shapes. There's so many different creative ways to use a magnetic board. So that's also a good idea. Um, 
So blocks, magnetiles, interesting things on a, a magnetic board. Um, I love to simple cars and vehicles or trucks. I think those are really engaging to a lot of kids. I love balls, like different shapes of balls. You know, even a baby, like I said before, rolling a big softball, that is so hard. To let the, If you have ever played ball with a baby, they don't know to let go. So there's, that's fun. But then again, an eight-year-old can take that ball and put it in a hoop and, and dunk it. And it's fun for him as well. So we've done things like wall balls, like a wall of balls where we've done it custom, where the kids have to put different balls in and they go to different places and they can learn shapes and sizes. And then they can also use the balls for other things. Um, and then in like a dress up area, I love just like pretend food, some, a couple of pretend dishes maybe, but that's it. And then just having a kitchen set. So it's about the same kind of play that you might do in residential, but really limiting the toys and having a lot of them. Because again, you want, if five kids want to play with something, you want them to all be able to play. And again, it's really fun for kids. If I've always played by myself at home with magnetiles, all of a sudden I'm with all these other kids, they're going to be like, wow, now we can build something totally different. I've never thought about building a spaceship before. And they're watching and they're learning and they're engaging in that. So that's also why those materials are good. And the same with the kitchen set and the kitchen food. They'll use them differently just because it's in a different setting with other kids. Um, so those are generally the toys I think are go-to for communal spaces. I love the idea of blocks and magnetiles too, because whenever we had things like that around, I would see the adults playing with them too. And it really helps them engage with their kids and it encourages the adults to be a little bit more active in the play, which, you know, again, depending on the space, some are designed for adults to kind of relax and let the kids play. Some are designed for the adult to be very engaged, but I found that the adults really also enjoy like or they enjoy playing with their kids if it's something like a magnetile or something like Lego. So that's really fun for all ages. Yes. And I think like a communal space could have different toys that come out. There's something, there's this cool toy that this, this gentleman made called Clickso in Brooklyn. It was really fun because I got to go to a studio one day and we talked about just play. It's almost, he took like the idea of origami and then put magnets on it. And, you know, that is something maybe you wouldn't want out all the time. You could, but like you said, it's adults go it's incredibly creative. Like I, I can only do so much. I would, I, there's things that I would want to create that I need practice with. So it could be too, that you have different materials, depending on who's coming in the space, again, to change it up a little bit with rotations. And, and I love that idea. If you're focused on having the adults play with the kids that you make sure that there are materials that maybe they haven't seen before or that they have never used before together. And again, you could have visual cues for that too, because I think some parents don't understand like how complicated block building is, or maybe you have huge blocks that the kids aren't used to, and they have to actually work together because you need some older kids or the adults to help build what it is that they want. And you could even have a couple of visuals out there like, can you make this or can you make this? Sometimes kids love that. Some kids hate that because they want to do what they want to do, but changing it up a little bit with like sort of making it purposeful learning and that kids can choose to do that or not with the materials, I think is a good idea. Yes. And I love what you said too, about having the imaginative play, but reducing the number of toys out at one time, unless there's a lot of kids that need to use them. When we first opened, I just assumed that more was better. So we had a million different play food options and Within 10 minutes of opening our floor, you could not walk a foot 
without stepping on like a carrot or on a fake baguette or something like that. So literally within a week of opening, like 90% of our toys were gone unless again, there were several kids and there was a shortage or something like that. But oh my gosh, that was such a learning experience. And as a parent who had only designed a residential play room for myself, I had no idea that that's how kids were going to interact with that space. So I love that you mentioned that. Yeah. And there's also, you know, I love for, I love doing felt food if the communal space is fine with obviously it's germs, but it's a lot of that you can wash. So, you know, again, you have to find your sweet spot, but felt for what's nice. It's not wooden. Wooden is noisy. It, it doesn't feel good to step on. It's clunky. It's like all those little pieces where you chop up the bananas. No, not in the communal play space. I think to make, think about things the way they feel, think about things that are noiseless um, and quiet is just, you know, kids don't like loud, chaotic environments. And just remembering that too, in the communal spaces are most kids do not, it's another sensory overload and it makes them not want to play in there. So by limiting the toys, thinking about what they're actually made of and the noises they make, I think is, is super important. And also remember that really creative kids, once they are really over three, maybe three, four, they'll take, you know, whatever it is that they have in their hand. I have, or this is, could be a banana. It could be a knife. It could be a spoon. It could be hot chocolate. It doesn't matter when they start to get older. So having less there actually encourages their imagination because they're almost forced to make it be something else. And that is awesome for kids. <laughs> Yeah. And that's great. And that's another thing that we can just explain to parents like, Hey, this is why we do it this way. Mm -hmm. And kind of leading from that place of education. So they understand a little bit more so that they're not like, Hey, why is there only three pieces of play food? (laughs) So again, I think that's something that we as owners can do a better job of pointing out to the parents. And like you said, putting visual cues of games that you can play with your child or play ideas or prompts for parents. Because again, as someone who didn't come from an education background, I had to learn how to play with my child, which is something that nobody ever told me when I was, you know, pregnant or anything like that. I thought it would just come naturally. It really didn't. And that's one of the reasons I decided to open my space was because we didn't really have spaces outside of the home in my area for parents of very young children to go. So it was definitely a learning curve for me. But I think if we can put those prompts and cues, that's a really good way to help parents engage with their kids there. Yeah. And think about that. And just what you said, it's like the communal space is about community. It's about bringing, not only bringing the kids together to play of different ages, which kids love, you know, there's so many schools in Europe that have two-year-olds with six-year-olds. That's purposeful because again, like I was saying, they model, they play differently and it can be such a successful relationship. We don't really do that in America, but there are real benefits to that age gap when kids play. So remember that for the communal, like this is about bringing kids together, but it's also about bringing adults together in different types of play and areas. And that again, they're going to be interested in different things, just like kids. So you have very things there. You can change out some of the core things um, and some of the toys and materials, but you understand how it can kind of bring people together when they want that. And that is certainly the focus of a communal space. Absolutely. So you had mentioned some of your favorite brands and go-to items for kind of that fine uh, fine motor play, like the magnetiles and things like that. 
Do you have any kind of go-tos for more of like a gross motor play or climbing structures or anything like that? I'm just curious. No, that's a really good question. You know, when there's so many different brands that we use for the physical play and honestly, mostly we build the playhouses and, and forts and that type of stuff, or we'll add a slide or something like that. But mostly they're from all different vendors thinking through the mats. I think, I think a core thing too, is to think about, you know, what the materials are and, and sourcing, you know, suppliers that mirror what you want from a eco-friendly standpoint or practical or commercial standpoint. So, you know, things that are made for residentials may not be as good for the commercial. So I think it's just researching um, what the materials are made of, kind of longevity of it and the aesthetic, and then kind of deciding on that. And to be honest, I find it's hard to find things in the physical space, but also really like even a good kitchen set that is eco-friendly, that is made for commercial grade space, meaning there's a lot of kids using it and, um, and that looks good. Um, so it's something that I'm always sort of researching and trying other products as well. It's hard, you know? Yeah, cool. I love the idea of making sure that your vendors align with your values and what you're kind of hoping to bring to your community. So that's a really good point because for everyone, it's going to be different. So mm -hmm. one more question before, you know, we talk about where people can find more about you and your business. So we're kind of talking about your go-tos and this kind of popped up in my head while we were speaking. Do you have any go-to favorite activities if we did want to design our space, if we were really geared towards sensory needs or kids with autism or things like that? Do you have any, just a one or two maybe go-tos that we really want to make sure we include? And this would be for the commercial, the communal yeah. space? Oh, uh, that is a good question. I, I think first, when I think about like a sensory space, I think it's really important when owners think about what kids see, what they feel and touch, what they hear and also their movement in the space. So I think first, like educate yourself about what a sensory space is, um, because we use that word a lot. And I think even for me, sometimes I need to go back and really read about it, like what that is. So that's the first thing is really understanding that what a child sees, hears, touches, and moves in the space affects their brain. So what do you want to do about that? So when I think about the design of the space, generally, I try to do really um, like a soothing kind of there's like almost like a rhythm to the colors, like it's cohesive. It feels good. I tend to do more gender neutrals, but again, I always collaborate with the the vendors, um, not the vendors, but with the clients. And I, if they want X, Y, Z, as far as the colors, and I'm thinking, well, maybe it should be A and B. We sort of come together. Maybe it's A, B, X, Y, Z, or some sort of thing that we promote. So I think my job just as a designer and educator when I work for other people is hearing what they want. They know their kids and they know the space, no matter if it's communal residential. And then I recommend certain things, but we sort of collaborate in what's best. Um, for me, I'm going to go probably more because some of the toys and some of the furnishings may be in a, a variety of colors. Let's say sometimes I do much more soothing 
like the walls and what's on the floor. And then we could do kind of pops of colors again that sort of go together that makes sense for the space. Um, and I try to bring the design aesthetic even in from the neighborhood, you know, so if we're in Brooklyn, Manhattan, or if we're in the suburbs, it kind of mirrors that, or we might make it totally different. <laughs> maybe you're in the suburbs, maybe it's like a real city feel to make it different. So Thinking through the colors, I, I I think that is so super important because we know when we walk into spaces as adults and even into your own home, you're like, oh, this doesn't really feel like me or this really feels like me. You feel good. So again, if the, if the goal is like that, all kids of different ages and interests feel good in the space, you really have to think about what's appealing to everybody. So that's what I'll do first is kind of think through the design aesthetic and then um, and then what was your question? <laughs> I was just asking if you had maybe like one go-to piece of equipment or activity oh. for children that's more of like a sensory activity. So it doesn't necessarily have to be for a kid who is on the spectrum, but right. is there like a favorite sensory experience or maybe, you know, a swing or something like that, that you that's tend to question. recommend? I think one of the things, cause I love a swing and, but I think swings are tricky and, um, in these communal spaces, you know, I love a pod chair. I think if you know what that is, <laughs> um, I think a pod chair is amazing and they make a whole bunch of different ones. And that's when the child just, it's almost like a cocoon shape and it's not, they can swing a little bit, they can move in it, but it's not, kids don't generally push each other crazy and it is soft. There's nothing hard in the swing to maybe hurt somebody else. So um, I've done like pod chairs, even in like the kitchen area, I've done pod chairs in kind of the main area. And obviously I do them in residentials as well. So that I think where you want to give your child that ability to kind of close off the rest of the area, if they want, it also snuggles them tight. So it kind of feels safe. And then you also get that movement. That would probably be my number one, um, as far as being safe and practical in the communal space, I think. Yeah. And that's something that I always look for um, because my son has sensory needs. I'm always looking for different options because he's always in a different mood. So some mm -hmm. days he wants to play independently. Some days he wants to play alongside his peers. Some days he wants to jump and go crazy. Some days he does want to be a little bit more closed off. So for us, we love, again, like you said, having those different options. Yeah. And I think in, in, too, understanding that kids want to be on their stomachs, their backs, you know, I think all kids do, but especially for maybe autistic kids or sensory kids. So providing like soft pillows or cushions and an open floor space that maybe have like some sort of texture to them. Um, I think that's a really nice idea because, you know, what's interesting is that when kids need something from a sensory perspective, they usually go right to it. Um, so if you kind of set some things up that are optional, again, using the walls or using the floors with things that if someone needs to just rub on a soft carpet for a little while to sort of settle themselves down, well, great. Um, we've done things too, where we have kind of almost like it's more for like a classroom thing, but again, it's commercial grade. There's a, a couple of different um, people who make different things where it's like, it feels different. They're harder and kids can rub their hands against it and kind of, again, get a sensory input that may feel, make them feel a certain way, or maybe they have to turn things on it or, you know, or again, thinking about the lighting, actually the lighting is really important too, with like general space. And if it's super bright, that might really be too much for some kids. So maybe, soft lighting in some areas, brighter in some, and the ability to dim it maybe um, for some kids is also a good idea just from a sensory perspective. So 
soft things around something that kind of snuggles them in. I also think a playhouse is great for kids with sensory because again, it's, it's their ability to block off the visual stimuli that might be too much for them. So that's, those are just two easy ways to do that in a big space with lots of activity. Um, and again, just having different textures for things uh, for kids to sort of run their hands over, I think is good. And, you know, a foam pit is a good thing too. Um, the foam can generally, you can replace that in six months. It's it's usually not that expensive. So that's another idea of giving kids kind of a sensory input um, with something that can be in a communal space that is good for appealing for all kids. That's awesome. I love those tips. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So um, for those of us, again, who aren't following you, I'm sure it's not many of us, but where we can, where can we go to learn more about you and your business? Sure. The best thing is just go to my website. It's www.smartplayrooms.com. And one of the things that I've been focused on the last year or two is to offer what I call our Smarty, which is like our e-design option. It's our virtual design options for families or commercial spaces really anywhere in the United States. And so if you're looking, if you're in Oklahoma and you're looking to design a space, you can actually opt for one of our three e-design options on our site. And that's really for people who just want the design from us. You know, they're going to do the measurements and kind of take care of that part. Um, they send that to us and we do everything virtually. And I have an incredible team of e-designers that helps me with these projects. And But all of our staff and our designers are educators. We all have master's degrees. Everything is about the child development. And again, the design comes out of that. So the Smarty design, I think, is amazing for people who want like a customized space geared to certain kids. Um, you would then take our design plan and you would hire someone to do the work. You would project manage it, but you would have the design. Like you said, it's so that's the part that is so hard for so many people. A lot of people like to do everything else. Um, so that's one option. I also have a shop this room option on my site, which I took some of the smart playrooms that I had designed. And like you were saying, it's hard to find some of these vendors or it takes us a while too sometimes for these spaces. So what I did was I took one of, I think there's about 10 to 12 spaces that I've done. And I allow people just to buy the design. Not, it's not even buying the design, it's buying the links that I use for that space. So people can say, oh, now I've got the 10 vendors. Now, how am I gonna design my own space using those vendors? So that's another, that's a really inexpensive option, but it's more when you're gonna do the design yourself, but you're wondering, oh my God, I wanna create the same look and feel on the walls, you know, on the floor and everything else. So shop the room is another option on our site. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. So I'm definitely going to link all of those resources in the show notes or the video description, depending on whether you're watching or listening. I'll again, link to your Instagram, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us again, because this is outside of my area of expertise. So I so appreciate your time and energy sharing all of your insight and expertise today. Well, it was so amazing to speak to you. I learned so much as well, and I love talking to you and thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. All right. That wraps up my conversation with Carrie, the owner of Smart Playrooms. So if you want to check out Carrie's business, all of her information is linked in the show notes. And again, Play Cafe Academy and Playmaker Society members, you can enjoy an exclusive discount for her e-design services for your business's play area. So stay tuned for more details. Keep your eyes on your inbox. And again, if you're in Playmaker Society, I'm definitely going to post about it in the group as soon as I have the details finalized. And 
If you're not yet a member or a student, it is not too late. Not only will you get this discount, you'll also get discounts for balloon vendors and point of sale systems and email service providers. The opportunities are really endless. And that's one of the reasons why I always say that courses and programs pretty much pay for themselves instantly when you enroll, not just because of the training and the resources and templates. It's also the real discounts that you can enjoy when you are a member. So thank you so much, Carrie, for sharing that discount with us. We appreciate you so much. And thank you so much for sharing your expertise on this podcast today. Again, I hope you enjoy this conversation and I'd love to know what you took away from it. So please feel free to DM me on Instagram, leave a rating and review if you found this episode helpful. But until next time, I will see you soon.